new rules to secure point-of-sales transactions, and rethinking the relationship between regulators and regulated companies to improve IT security. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's report by looking at the revised standards to secure point-of-sale transactions. The PCI Security Standards Council is making additions to its PIN transaction and point-of-interaction security requirements to help ensure that point-of-sale vendors remain ahead of new attacks aimed at defeating encryption. Bank Info Security Executive Editor Tracy Kitten joins me to discuss these new standards. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Eric. What's new here? The council just released version 5.0 of the PIN transaction security point of interaction standard, as you mentioned. Point of sale manufacturers have until the end of 2017 to comply, and part of the update deals with the evolution of encryption. But before we get into that, you really have to understand what side channel analysis is. Troy Leach is the PCI Security Standards Council's chief technology officer, and he explains side analysis as this. It's looking at specifically the the device itself. And by device, leech means point of sale or POS devices. And whether it can emanate radiation of the cryptography as it's happening. Can you, by the way that the microprocessor is operating, can it actually detect from that computational power whether or not it can determine what is the cryptography that's being used. And once you know the cryptography and you know the, the key that's being used, then encryption becomes pointless. So we're trying to prevent any type of breaking down the encryption in order to protect those payment transactions. Okay, with this quick uh, tutoring session on side channel analysis complete, how is the new standard addressing encryption? First of all, Eric, the PCI Security Standards Council's lab researchers, as well as its independent forensic evaluators, have been looking at encryption itself and the growing dependency organizations have on encrypting all types of data. Here again is Troy Leach. We're looking at how you take encryption and can actually take side channel analysis and other types of ways to break down encryption to actually get to the data itself and knowing that criminals are always going to look at the lowest common denominator of how they can steal this information, how they can steal the keys. Once they have the keys, then it becomes a game over for stealing all the account information. So we're looking at what does the next generation of devices look like and specifically how can we prevent types of attacks such as side channel analysis. The updated standards also address the need to remotely update the device's firmware. Why is this important? It's important so that POS vendors can quickly address new threats and risks by mitigating their potential impact with remote updates. So these updates can be completed within hours rather than days, weeks, or even months if you had to have a technician come out. Doesn't remotely updating firmware present its own security concerns? Yes, it does. And Leach says that the PCI Security Standards Council began addressing some of those concerns in its last version of the standards. That's a big change from a decade ago. It was very simple 10 years ago because there wasn't that remote access availability. And now we have all these new protocols that can access and not only can the vendor access their own devices remotely, but that means that criminals have that opportunity as well. So the attack surface became much broader for criminals to go out and try to find these devices on the internet, see if there's some type of connectivity that they could break the administrative access to those devices. We started looking at in version three and version four, open protocols and other ways that we can start to protect the remote parameter and all these other access points from Bluetooth and other types of communication channels that previously did not exist in a payment terminal. What's next in store for these standards? I think that we'll continue to see payment card security standards evolve to address emerging risks, especially as new types of payments and the instruments used to conduct them, such as mobile devices, become more commonplace. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Eric. 
anonymizing data doesn't necessarily assure that they remain secure. To explain, here's ISMG's Security and Technology Editor, Jeremy Kirk. The abrupt withdrawal of a set of historical medical data by Australia's Department of Health once again shows the dangerous waters organizations tread when trying to preserve privacy. Data was a 30-year-old sampling of claims Australians made under Medicare, which is the country's public health service. It was released as part of a large Australian program to make government data more accessible. But researchers at the University of Melbourne found that the method used to encrypt a key part of the information could be reverse-engineered in a few days due to a weak algorithm. Although no patient information was exposed, the discovery was compelling enough for the Department of Health to withdraw the data set until it could be more strongly secured. Australia's Privacy Commissioner has also launched an investigation. Vanessa Teague, a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne, says the finding underscores the importance of carefully examining mathematical techniques used to anonymize data. She says that such algorithms should be discussed more publicly and be reviewed. The Department of Health took steps to try to protect sensitive data. The data did not contain patient names, but instead assigned them an ID number, which was not connected to their real Medicare number. Also, only a person's birth year was included. The dates of medical consultations were changed to a within 14 days of the actual event. The ID for medical providers was anonymized using a weak algorithm. Researchers attempted to decrypt the patient IDs but were unsuccessful. Although the data set did not include the names and addresses of people, the researchers characterized the ability to decrypt the provider IDs as serious. Teague says there are dangers if datasets are not properly anonymized. The fear is that if it's not done properly, attackers can leverage public information to figure out the stuff that's supposed to be secret. That happened in 2006, when AOL released a huge batch of search data. The New York Times showed it was trivial to analyze search terms and contextually hone in on a particular user, even after AOL had replaced user IDs with an anonymous number. In regard to the Department of Health data, even if an attacker can't decrypt the patient or service provider IDs, the information that is not encrypted could help an attacker triangulate on a patient. For example, the dataset contains several people who were born in the 1890s. Teague says that's a really distinct bit of information, which if combined with other public information, could be used to make a solid guess about a person's identity. Another hypothetical example might be a member of parliament who suffered a heart attack. The media might have covered an event such as that, and the person's birth year wouldn't be hard to find. The more an attacker knows about a person, the greater the chance that information could be leveraged to discover more. Following the Department of Health situation, the Attorney General, George Brandis, announced a quick amendment to the Privacy Act of 1988 making it a criminal offense to de-anonymize government data. Teague says a better approach would be to start with more secure anonymizing techniques in the first place. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Getting the U.S. federal government and business to collaborate when sharing cyber threat information is an administration goal, and federal regulators serve as one juncture between the government and the private sector. U.S. Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker seeks to restructure that adversarial relationship to encourage cooperation when sharing cyber threat information. She says that adversarial relationship discourages companies to share cyber threat data in the current environment. We cannot blame executives for worrying about what starts today as an honest conversation about a cyber attack could end tomorrow in a punish-the-victim regulatory enforcement action. 
to encourage collaboration and assure that regulators don't use cyber threat information shared by regulated companies against them in enforcement actions, Pritzker proposes a reverse Miranda protection. Nothing you say in this setting will be used against you. Don't get me wrong. We must protect consumers and hold industry to high standards. But we also need real team effort, and we have to create the conditions for that. We know that when industry and government proactively come together to solve problems, everyone benefits. But does everyone benefit? Congress created regulatory agencies to assure that the public is protected against actions taken by businesses. Would creating a more cozy relationship for a good cause, stopping cyber attacks, compromise the core purpose of regulatory agencies, protecting the public? Lee Tian thinks it could. Tian is senior staff attorney at the Civil Liberties Advocacy Group, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And he says consumer protections could be compromised if regulatory agencies provide the same type of liability safeguards to regulated companies that's granted by the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act. Josh Corman is director of the Cyberstate Craft Initiative at the think tank Atlanta Council. And he sees challenges, ones that can perhaps be overcome, in developing a regime within regulatory agencies to facilitate cybersecurity collaboration with regulated companies. It is a little bit of a confluence of the fox garden and the hen house. A little less like that, but more that there's a chilling effect often when the regulators in the room, the amount of sharing or the type of sharing is awkward and maybe stifled. But there is this kind of need to say, look, we are very worried about cybersecurity. We don't yet know the roles we should all play, but we know we need to share more. And it can get very complicated and it, and it can be done wrong. Information sharing and the changes that would bring to the way regulatory agencies function is seen by some in the regulatory community as helping build a more secure environment, a more collaborative environment. Here's Ashley Taylor, a former Deputy Attorney General in Virginia, who now is a partner in the law firm Troutman Sanders. From the company's perspective, you want predictability and you want to know what to do to demonstrate to everyone involved that you took all the steps you could to put the right protections in place and that you're a responsible company. And unfortunately, in today's environment, a company can do everything right and nevertheless have an incident. If you're a company, you want to do the right thing. You want the regulator to be able to tell you what they expect of a company and to be able to rely upon that. So when you're providing both advice as outside counsel and internally, you're devoting the right resources and saying, look, here are the best practices as recommended by our regulated entity. If we do this, we will have demonstrated that we are taking all appropriate precautions. And right now, there's not a clear blueprint for that. That's what companies want, predictability and direction, and so they can follow the rules. But you have to have some way to create rules in this new environment. The question remains, though, will sharing cyber threat information between regulators and the regulated result in improved cybersecurity? And how will that benefit the public regulators are charged to protect? That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.